Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. Well, you coming? Where? Why? To the Zoom call, of course. This is the Podler X cast. Ben clearing his throat, which I assume he will cut out in the middle of that, really drove it home. That was really good. <laughs> the Podler X cast. <laughs> It'd be great. That 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 the Ben clearing his throat was like the dad, you know, at who brought uh his kid to see this movie. Uh, just clear, like just completely bored by this movie, like <clears throat> in the middle of the multiplex. <laughs> this is one of those movies where I I would pay anything to see a dad at a bar trying to explain it to the other barflies the evening after he brought his kids to see a matinee. Like the person you're describing, David. I want to see that guy complaining to the bartender about this fucking movie. He's like he's like. Complaining, but he's also saying the whole plot the as whole he complains. Thing. He's like, and then there's this hobo. I right. guess he's on the, the roof. I, I don't really right. get, you know, like. I don't want to see that guy making jokes about it. I want to see that guy actually angry, complaining to a bartender <laughs> who feigns interest. Uh, hello, everybody. Do you hear that? We need a little dinging sound, right? A little, uh, well, a little jingle jangle. What do you mean, David? I just did the jangle. You couldn't hear it? Uh, now I can hear it. See? You weren't believing earlier, but the jingle jangle was there the entire time. Of course. Right. That, that's what it was. This, of course, is Blank Check with Griffin and David. My name is Griffin. And I'm David. I'm David! Uh, hot, this hot. is a... This is a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their career are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce, baby. And I want to just make something incredibly, incredibly clear from the beginning of this episode. On this podcast, there is just one rule. Okay. Never, ever let it cool! <laughs> I can't believe you've never seen this movie, Griffin. That's the you've only, never seen it. Only you've rule. Never seen it. Only That's rule. Only Genocide rule. allowed on the train. <laughs> <laughs> Encouraged. Absolutely. But the hot only the strongest survive. Yeah. Look, look. If 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 kids aren't strong enough to stay alive, that's on them. <laughs> but hot chocolate, that's on you. Never ever let it cool. Children lose their ticket, the ticket which only sort of exists in a, you know, in a, in the physical world. If they lose it, then they're out of luck. Joey, I love, I love the 20 minutes of this movie that are about a stern, emotionally shut off white man hastily <laughs> escorting a young black girl off a train in 1955. <laughs> you don't know that it's 1955. It's just a generally sort of, you know, leave it to beaver time in America. That's David, all. I looked it up and Zemeckis said it was explicitly 1955. That was his intention, even though it's not sated. 
He's like, right, like the, the, the Eisenhower Stevenson election is sort of yes. building steam. Like that, that's yeah. where he wants you to think. You're, you know, like he wants you in that mindset. Well, there are all those scenes where you see news footage of the conductor shaking hands with whoever the president is. Right. Of course. <laughs> oh, boy. What? A, there's so much to dig into here. Wait, so David, had you seen it? Um, yeah, but like on TV, I certainly didn't see it in theaters. I remember watching, I would say probably 80% of it on TV, like just out of like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll officially hate this. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's it. I've never seen it again. When you, I mean, we're going to get into, we'll introduce you and we're going to get into this, but when you said like, (laughs) you know, Polar Express I've never been more flabbergasted. I had no idea. Yeah. It's like some dark secret you've been keeping. Like I just did not know that was well, an interest also, of yours. Let's also say like five years earlier, the two of you probably would have seen this movie together. Uh, sure. Right. I mean, cause no, but yeah, by the time it came out, I was, I was in college out of completism, if nothing else, but yes, uh, but yes, sure. For sure. But I, I just think it's interesting because not introducing the guest net yet, not introducing the guest, but the two of you are brothers. <laughs> yes. Good point. Mm-hmm, good point. Mm-hmm. And you were both Sending adolescent when this film came out, even if you were not children, you know, but you were, yeah, you were yeah. young, and, and, young adults. And, and we also just, we would, as, as the guest said, uh, you know, we would we would see the big movies, especially right. if, you know, a potential awards movie, maybe or something like that. You know, it is just kind of funny for this movie in 2005 that, Joey, you have strong opinions on it. And David Haight watched it on TV casually 10 years later. Like, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly that. That is correct. You nailed it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and, I and wasn't a, sure. Go on. Go on, Griffin. No, I was just going to say, especially that flip of it. I know you're a big uh, film fan as well, but David is the one who watches stuff obsessively. It is odd that you're the one who, like, saw it and imprinted on it in any sort of way. Yeah, especially since I would have thought that David might have an opinion because it is a significant movie not in its uh in its use of technology and in being the griffin is shaking his head at that uh agreed. no agreed in, agreed i thought you were gonna throw out a hot take no it's like david keeps on throwing out his hot take that like tron legacy is the most important film the last 20 years and it's very similar to build it's very easy to build a similar take around this movie which is why right. it perplexes me that david isn't more obsessed with this movie right because whether you believe it is a you know a, a a wonderful piece of cinema or not. No one, I think, would question that it I'm sorry. was a... Uh, I'm sorry. What? This is a <laughs> pile of steaming shit. <laughs> ben, we'll get to ben, that. Ben, this is on you. You don't believe hard enough. You didn't learn the lesson of the movie. Your your ticket does not say learned. It does not say believe. Your ticket says Scrooge. No, it says it says like uh, what ditch. <laughs> yeah, it says ditch. Porch. I'd rather spend Scum. the whole movie with those fucking toys than watch any other part of this movie. Uh, ben, our finest film critic, texted uh, the two of us at I believe uh, one fifteen a.m. Just yeah, the somewhere words, around there. Bah humbug, <laughs> and that's. His full review. He didn't say I'm watching it tonight. He didn't say had just watched the Polar Express. He just texted Bah Humbug, and both of us knew exactly what had happened. Even though 
here's the, he doesn't even know that there's a Christmas Carol episode coming up. Um, and by the way, Ben, I would have really, I would have guessed that this would have been one of the movies that you were like, I didn't actually watch this one, guys. And I'm shocked <laughs> right, right. that it is not. <laughs> well, I um, love the book. So I gave it a shot. And man, man, oh man, was I disappointed. Man, uh, man. Joey, what were you going to say five tangents ago? Our guest today, a longtime brother of David Sims, uh, Joey C. Sims. Uh, I was going to say that I thought um, that David might have seen it for the first time last time because he posted a very brief review on his uh, on his letterbox. Although I know oh, that doesn't... you're and letterboxing me. No, oh, yeah. no, no. But the only reason I I do not use the uh, the the box. But the only reason I'm aware of this is that I watched the movie with my roommate who asked me to name check him. So I'm making sure to do it right away. My roommate, Lane Montgomery, uh, who uh, just heard his the, voice, did the theme song for for a little a little podcast. This is the first time this has ever been confirmed as blank check canon. But you did not know Lane Montgomery. And now through a series of circumstances, the two of you live together and have been quarantining together. <laughs> The magic sure. of blank check. He reached out to to he just saw the listing on he saw it on Facebook uh, and he was like, this looks like this looks great for me. And also, by the way, as an aside, like, I think I did the theme music for your brother's podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. And then moved in on March 1st and then some other things per- happened. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Mm, yeah. He was texting me, the two of you playing Star Wars Monopoly together. I just keep on <laughs> thinking of the two of you living together and it seems like a really nice low-conflict sitcom in my mind. Right. It's a sitcom with very little stakes. Yeah. He watched it, uh, watched, watched Polar Express with me last night, which he loved. He loved he that got experience. Aboard. He boarded the train. Um, he, he was thrilled. Um by the whole thing and then posted something about it on some form of social media. I don't know what. And then uh, a friend of his texted him, a friend who also follows David on the letterbox and texted him. It just, just texted him like, did you and David Sims both watch the movie, the polar express? Last yeah. Night? yeah. <laughs> Very con- understandably confused. Why, why two people would be watching it for two different reasons, but of course he, it's all connected. Here, I'm, I'll clear. I'm going to clarify this for for the fans and for you know for everyone who cares. Well, and let me also clarify for our our listeners the reason why random people would be watching Polar Express is this is a miniseries on the films of Robert Zemeckis. It's called Podcast Away, and today we're talking about the Polar Express. One there, of his I finished biggest my hits. One of his biggest hits, right? One of his biggest fucking hits. Maybe his third um, highest grossing movie ever. Yeah. Well, no, is four? it though? Because those Back to the Future is definitely messed. Yeah, yeah, maybe four, maybe four. Maybe four. Got, Castaway made a lot of money too, though. You know, he's yeah. got a lot of hits, but yeah. one of his biggest hits. Um, I don't. I'm quite persnickety about my letterbox, like you know, logging y- and you? all that stuff. Persnickety about a site that allows you to catalog <laughs> film opinions and watching habits. <laughs> right. Yes, but. Um, I am not always totally on top of logging things as like a rewatch if, mm. you know, because like Letterbox will automatically do that if you've logged it on Letterbox before. Mm-hmm. But I, I like I like so I'm not going to like what happened? Like, you know, I think it probably logged it as a first viewing for me. Well, it's a first viewing in my uh, in my Letterbox life. OK, so now it's been wow. clarified for everybody. Wow. Wow. Um, I had I'm obviously I never logged it before. Yeah. Um, and my review was. That was some weird shit, and you know what? Stand by it. 
I know, just you know. looked up the letterbox page and the top review I saw was our friend of the show, past and future guest Patrick Willems. Stop the Polar Express. I want to get off. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. It's pretty, pretty perfectly good. said. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Um, I mean, what can you say? Anyway, but okay. So with all with the all the introducing done and all that. Yeah. There's just also yeah, it's worth noting that Joey's on this episode. Mm-hmm. You know, your sister was on okay, your sister was on um Julie and Julia. Makes Probably sense. Newman on Julie and Julia. Yeah. She loves to cook. Like yeah. that makes sense. Uh Joey, uh, you, you, you were on our Lost in Space episode. Obviously, that was a sibling choice. You were on Ratatouille. Mm-hmm. But uh, but this was the first time in a while you were like, well, uh, just, just FYI, I heard you're doing Zemeckis. I might be interested in talking about the Polar Express. So let's delve into this, Joey. I don't understand it. W- yeah, why w- the when fuck? did this happen? Yes. How? Why? When? Um, I was thinking about this beforehand knowing i was going to be asked this but unfortunately as david can attest to from knowing me so well i have a really bad memory mm. um, you do terrible and, memory uh and i do not remember when i first saw this movie or when or what specifically first began a weird interest in it i remember that it was not in theaters because i did not see this movie in theaters that would wow. help to explain it if i could come on and say like look guys i saw this thing when it came out in like yeah. IMAX in 3D Blue because right that way. is yeah the right way because that is the form in which even certain critics from what I remember when it came out who saw it in that form were like listen this movie's weird but you gotta see what this shit looks like in like 3D IMAX looks also, crazy if you um, saw it uh, in the fucking holiday season and walking in and out of the theater right. you were greeted by fucking lights and carolers and a cup of nog or whatever I could see you just being like I don't know fucking Christmas shit it gets to me right no I don't have anything like that uh, for you I probably I don't know just, just watch it on probably TV was the first time and um I don't know. It was just taken in by it. I think one thing I would say is that uh, the tripping up point for a lot of people in this movie and the thing that they just can't get past uh, is that, and we're going to talk about this, I'm sure, some more, is that the characters look creepy as hell. Yeah. Which um, characters? Wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. Which characters look creepy? <laughs> There's a lot of weird, interesting stuff happening in this movie in terms of how bizarre the bizarrely the screenplay is constructed or not really structured um in terms of how creepy it is not in the in their in their faces but in the way that the characters behave yeah especially yep. all of the yep. adult characters yep. um yep. <laughs> uh in the tone the tonal mess of it the fact that it just turns into a different movie like every scene yeah yep. um and then i don't know other than that i don't know there's just something about it no, it, I it don't is disagree a fascinating object. It is something right. I, I could see myself getting dangerously attached to trying to make sense of it. Watching it too many times, trying <laughs> Here, to like it, it could become an old dog type fixation for me. And I'm right. putting real bumpers on myself from going down the rabbit hole on this one. Because it's not a movie. You, I think what I expect or whatever. I know the movie's weird, so I, that's not true. But, you know, it's not just a sappy, bad movie. Like I, that would almost be easier to 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 deal with, right? If it's yeah. just like a movie where it's like, oh, you know, 
Christmas, you know, we just got to be there for each other. And like that, that's what Christmas is all about. Like that I could handle. I don't, I, I literally was like saying to, uh, I was talking to Emma last night. Cause I was like, what is this movie about? I don't really know what the message is supposed to be about it. Apart from believing, which yeah. we're going to get into. And she was like, I know. My dad loves that movie. And so it's like, it's to me, it's is so it Stefanski? weird. Stefanski's yeah, dad? Yeah, Stefanski. And like, wow. and yet, and she is not like, I think she is representative of so many people where like, it's just like, they're like, Polar Express family classic. The train comes, great movie. Goes to see Santa. Yes. What are you it, talking it, about? Like nothing weird about it. It is weird that it, it does feel like it's sort of got grandfathered into being a holiday classic on a technicality in certain right. ways. But I even think that like the year before this is Elf, and perhaps I'm somewhat biased because I think Elf is the best Christmas movie the last 20 years and is the one that my family tends to watch together. A, a but, good movie. Uh, right, Joey but and I, I saw that movie in theaters. That's, that's yep. a movie for me that really grows that I think is great and that like – in the way David, we, we talked about in a recent episode, movies that like gain a star on Netflix. <laughs> Elf is like a gain a, a star from repeated viewing around the holiday season movie. It just fucking yeah, plays. Right. Gains, gains a star on December right. or whatever. But I, right. I sense like a real people are passionate about that movie. And there's like an adaptability of it of like they did a Broadway musical. They did a fucking stop motion special. They've done children's books of it. Like it feels like there's some potency to the story that works across different interpretations. And this just weirdly, the most I ever hear people say is just that boilerplate like, oh, yeah, my dad loves that movie. Or like, I love that movie when I was a kid. But no one kind of unpack why this movie has any emotional impact on them. Like, I totally understand you, Joey, being like, we have to look into this thing. Yeah. But I don't understand people just being like, yeah, I don't know. It makes me no, feel no, no. good. Any family views this as like the movie you just sort of put on in the holiday times, then they must not be paying any attention to it. Must it must just sort of be on be in the background because that's a wild thing to say. All that, caps that, must <laughs> be investigated. No, no. But I think that's what Joey's saying is right. I think it's a movie you put on the first yeah. half hour. You're into it. You're like watching it with the family, you know, and that's the part which like, okay, they're getting on the train, going to see Santa. And then people get up and they start getting dinner ready or like doing, you know, like, and then people are in and out. Cause like the last half of this movie, if you sit down and watch it, Oh, I mean, what's wrong with you? Like, come on. Not only is it bizarre, it's bad. Like, so like, I think it's just that. Yes. The score feels like such a musical encapsulation of the commercial spirit of Christmas, right? Of the sort of like marketing department, like sentiment of but Christmas. That's what this movie's about. It's about yes, believing yes. that you're going to get presents. It's yes. I, that, like Elf is about, like you say, like that's a movie yeah. about a nice person uh-huh. who's nice. Yes. And he comes to New York and New York is a tougher town than he's used to. But like, you know, the spirit of Christmas is embodied in him and how he makes everyone better. It's, a, it's yes. a Paddington story. And even though it right. comes into like belief of Christmas and Santa Claus, ostensibly it's about him selling the idea of like brotherhood and caring and compassion during the holiday season. Like it, right. it has some other shit it's tapping into. This is just like completely self-reflexive. This what? movie's like, what's it about? Believing, believing in what? The belief. But this what am I supposed movie... to be believing in? The Polar Express. <laughs> but where does the Polar Express take me? To Christmas. <laughs> this movie is, and I think, there's nothing wrong with this, but it is inarguable is for people who, who their God is Santa. Yes. Like 
this movie is religious, but about Santa, the yes. the like Coca Cola guy, you know, like Santa, the twentieth century god. Like you believe in Santa. What does Santa do? Gets you presents. What else? Lives at the North Pole. Is there any like sort of Christmas Christian feeling here? None at all. That's not what this is about, baby. I'm sorry. I have to pull the emergency brakes for a second. Okay. Because we're going straight into the deep end, but I think there's a big question we all got to answer before we dig into this episode deeper. I think we all need to talk about our relationships to Christmas. Okay, go ahead. No, because I do think... Look, yes, I, no, am, I mean, that's fine. I, I am a Jewish person, right? We're I'm all three Jews quarters here. I mean, Jewish. not Ben. Yeah, not Ben. I was a kid who loved Christmas. We had a sort of very uh, uh, agnostic uh, celebration of Easter and Christmas in particular in my household. Sure. I think because I was just a kid who loved ceremony and toys and candy and shit. Um, and there was always this thing of like, I definitely... Despite being a Jew in the private school system in New York City, perhaps the most welcoming place to be a Jew where you feel like you have the most cultural currency, um, I still felt left out of the fact that I wasn't Christian and I couldn't partake in the holidays that seemed fun, you know? Like, I knew that we didn't have any spiritual connection. I know, to it. I, I, I get you, I get so you. So we we yeah. very much celebrated Christmas in a very Polar Express way, where it was right. like belief in Santa and Rudolph and green and red and this music and presents and no deeper meaning in any of this. And I love Christmas and it makes me fucking sentimental and I'm a sap for like when the fucking commercials come on. I built a little more cynicism to it, but it's still very easy to break me with Christmassy shit. Wait, but so you believed in Santa though? You like- so you, 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 you did the whole ritual of Santa. Absolutely, and that was, all okay, of it, okay. all of it. We were, it was just the performative rituals of the holiday. Uh, in, um, in a very hollow way, like this. Well, Joey's huh. birthday is on Christmas Eve, which I don't know if you would remember that, but... Wow. Uh, so, I'm sorry, Joey, that stinks. Yeah. Everyone always says that, but it's really fine. But you don't get <laughs> you don't get as many presents. As somebody who's like a June birthday, I have six months between Christmas and my birthday mm. to clear the slate so that the yeah. presents just stack up, baby. <laughs> You clear this. You have a present table, and yes. by Christmas it's ready again. Yep. Um, that's, <laughs> Around yes. May, Ben just starts tapping on the table, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> giving the side eye to his parents, looking a little bare, folks, huh? Um. So I would say, and I don't know if you agree with this. I mean, Christmas was really more of just kind of like this afterthought to Joey's birthday because Joey's mm. birthday was kind of the presenty event, mm-hmm. and. Because we were Jews, we kind of like did Hanukkah whenever we did Hanukkah. Like, yeah. you know, so that moved around. So if Hanukkah and my birthday had both passed it, in our family, it would sort of feel like we were done with the whole present giving sure. season and all that. It was over. And then Christmas was an afterthought. And there, yeah, there was no Santa presents, no yeah. tree. No tr- no right. Tree. The thing is, because we have British relatives and then later lived in Britain, let's just get this out of the fucking way. <laughs> I, um, I hate this new fucking you. You just like Mitch McConnell style try to ram it through the system <laughs> to block the bit from happening. Oh boy, oh boy. Well, because we have British relatives and we moved to Britain in 1995. Piece of shit. You hate joy. Pausing. 
Okay. There's no um, what? Wait, come on. All right, fine, 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 fine. Okay. Um, we would get presents from from some of the Brits because you know Christmas in Britain. That's mm-hmm. you know that's the main event. Um, so it would be kind of this like vestigial, you know, it would be like sort of the end of the present season, like we said. Sure. No Santa, never wow. believed in Santa. Wow. Did your parents uh, tell you that Santa wasn't real or did you just never buy into it? I, I think, think it really just, came up. Yeah, wow. there was just no effort to introduce him into the, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like wow. you do have to like, be like, you know, Santa came, right? You have to, you have to oh. do a oh. little theatrics, right? Oh. Like, to, I mean, to it was, it was it my, going. my dad's big, big showcase as an actor every year <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> was the Santa shit overreacting to anything Santa did or didn't do and tipping the hand of like do you think he's gonna eat the cook I think he might not eat the cookies this year he would just Jesus. he was not subtle I mean, with any of that shit it seems fun like and it's so funny because your dad is Jewish like to think about him being like you know what fuck it let's oh, yeah. just go for it um but right, so but my, uh, my mom was half and half and my grandmother yeah. very much tried to pretend she wasn't Jewish for most of her life. And my dad's parents, I think, were the same where it was like, we're Jews. We're not super religious, but we do Christmas out of ceremony. We do the Santa shit and whatever. But here's the thing. And Joey, you should. This is my thing. I don't know if you agree with this, Joey. But like, so my experience of Christmas, like my experience of much of life is mm-hmm. through movies like that's. You know, the Christmas I understand the most, the Hollywood Christmas. Like, would you agree, Joey? I mean, I think this movie is an example of that part kind of not registering with me as much because I don't have the, like, childhood attachment or whatever. Sort of, like, the things that are interesting to this to me about this movie obviously have nothing to do with Santa um, other, sure. than his, other than his terrifying face. Um, but, yes, generally, more generally speaking, um, yeah, culture would have been the only place movies would have been the only place where this idea would have been uh, introduced to us. But that did not seep into us to the extent of us being like, is Santa coming to parents who had never introduced this concept? It did not have that level of power, Mm, which you'd think it might, but it didn't. Well, I will say this, that my family, staunch atheists. Sure. Tracks. Your dad's yes. a man of science. Your dad's a man of he science. Is. Yeah, you're an only child. Correct. My dad was just like, Jesus, Santa, Easter Bunny, not real. And I was really? like, <laughs> so, I was like, uh, like so young. And he just like, uh, like just got it Listen all up, buddy. out of the way. <laughs> yeah. right. Let's get down to brass tacks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you also, your parents were old first time parents. It's fair to say, Correct. right? Correct. Right. So I think they also kind of have like got to that point where they were just like sort of tired. Yeah. Right. And they had moved on already. So they were just like, listen, kid, none of this is real. All right. <laughs> yeah. You're going to get presents. We'll, we'll have some family come by. Like that's just how it's going to be. That's I mean, it's fascinating out of four of us that I'm the only one who grew up with Santa Claus. I just wanted to share, though, that I was the kid on the bus who to tell everybody that Santa isn't real and made kids cry. First, like oh. I was the first one to make sure that I let everybody know. Yeah, you were one scoop. of those kids. You tr- you tried every year to to break the story in the school newspaper. You could, but you couldn't. You Being couldn't verify you, it. Man. <laughs> your dad wouldn't speak on record, so you could never get confirmation. Who are your sources? I can't tell you. They're very high level. 
Um, I remember my dad at one point, like I, because I was such a hyper obsessive kid, grilling him on like the 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 logic of Santa Claus. Mm. Not because sure. I didn't believe; I so avidly classic, believed. But I just wanted. Convo. But I just right. wanted yeah. the answers. I was just curious to get some sort of definition. And I remember him just like pulling a lot of wild shit out of his ass, but then saying like, "How do you know all this stuff?" And my dad telling me, "There's a book when you become a father that they give you <laughs> that has like just a lot of this information in it." And I was like, "Can wow. I see the book?" And he was like, "You can't see it unless you're a dad." And I always. I think about that all the time because it is fascinating that Santa Claus still exists as like a concept, especially in the age of the internet, because it's just so easy to fact check this shit. Like all you have to do is right. like go to school and then go to one other kid and being like, so what about the, your dad with that book? And the kid would be like, my dad doesn't have any fucking book. That's not a thing. Like every parent is making up their own mythology to fill in the blanks. I remember going over to a kid's house and looking at like a book they had. And in the inscription on the inside, it said like, dear Michael, for being a good boy this year, love Santa Claus. And I was like, why does Santa Claus write you fucking notes? And he doesn't write me fucking notes. Mm, right. Like, different approaches. That That's the stabilizing thing. Doesn't right. track from family to family. You know, my, yeah. my parents would be like the presents that they got us would be wrapped and under the tree in the days leading up to Christmas. And then the surprise presents that Santa showed up with were unwrapped. And I think that was partially for the impact of like waking up, seeing things that magically were there, but also because they were just give us a fucking break. We don't want to wrap all of these. But then you talk to any other families. They're like, no, the Santa presents are the ones that are most wrapped. Right. Those are the fanciest. Yeah. So what did your dad say about living in an apartment? Like, how did Santa get there? Came through the windows. I had a fireplace in the house that grew up. Absolutely. Absolutely. We lived on the 11th floor. He said that Santa came through the window, despite the window obviously having bars on it. (laughs) (laughs) Magic is the answer, right? Magic is always the answer. A wizard did it. But um, there are a lot of holes. How old was I, David, when I saw uh, the movie The The Santa Santa Claus? Claus? Yeah, and okay, was so. and was totally distraught by it. When did that come out? You, this is out? referenced very often on the podcast. The impact that the Santa before? Claus had on you. It's, oh yes, I don't, I don't know about very often, but I've definitely referenced it. Yes, uh, uh, yeah, that came out in '94, so you would have been Joey, like four or five years old, right? So and, I was only, yeah. I was that young when I saw it and was uh, became uh, so so upset by the opening yeah. of the movie, which is Santa Claus. Dying uh-huh. slash slash being yes. murdered, or does he kill him eh. accidentally? No, he, he just slips. Falls. Yeah, he, he slips, but it's because he's kind of he's scared by Tim Allen. It's right. like manslaughter. Tim right. Allen, Tim going, <laughs> yeah, he grunts too loudly, and then. um, yeah. So, I, although actually, I guess this anecdote actually proves the opposite point that I was trying to make because I was distraught by the idea right. of. Uh, of Santa Claus uh, dying, which suggests that I had an attachment to you uh, had you had some sort uh, of investment in the idea, at least as a some fictional sort of, character. You felt some fondness, yes. apparently, or maybe I just sort of felt general human empathy for the for the for the fallen. But yeah, yeah. hey, gotta respect the fallen. I mean, <laughs> but up. anyway, I uh, yes, I got so upset that I had to be taken out of the movie theater, and she eventually took me to the hospital because she thought 
that something was wrong with me. She, no, no, I want to. <laughs> she didn't. She didn't take you to the hospital. She took you to the doctor. Like well, the hospital right, would have been extreme, right? <laughs> um, but yes, I. You basically just would not stop crying. I believe you because you were so upset. Just sort of eventually, she was like, "Does your ear hurt?" You know, and you were like, "Yeah," you know, like I think you. She, you just kind of. She was like, "There's got to be. It can't just be." This dumb fucking, fucking movie. movie, you know, like yeah. you don't even believe in the guy. It's an actor for crying out loud, you stupid four year old. You never even see the guy's face. He doesn't have any dialogue. Uh, you don't. That's true. You don't. It's just just a crazy premise. Anyway, but we're not talking about it's a non speaking part. He probably got below SAG minimum. Why are you crying, Joey? Um, but anyway. so when this movie comes out, yeah, we're talking. Oh, four. Uh, October. Oh, four. Yeah. Right, so I am in college. Right. It's my first year in college. I'm mm-hmm. not going to get the boys together, you know, <laughs> sure. to be like, come on, guys, let's 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 strap on our 3D glasses yeah. and go see fucking Santa Claus. Like, so uh, I guess that was my yeah, I, I just missed it. And then it was this sort of mocked movie. So I was mm, like, yeah. I didn't miss anything. Right. My main or only memory, big memory from its cinematic release was that there was a teaser trailer that premiered uh, like a full year before. It was one of those movies that had like a promotional rollout that Mm. started like way ahead of time. And I feel like this teaser was possibly attached to some big movie, but I can't remember which because I feel like I saw it multiple times. And the teaser is just the opening scene of just the polar, uh, not quite the opening of the train pulling up and then Tom Hanks being like, this is the Polar Express and that's it. Right. And then I, I feel like that. it was one of, and that was just out there forever. And it was one of those trailers that came out so early yeah. that you're just like, after a while, you're just like, when are you going to fucking release this thing? But yeah, but I, of course I it remember, took a while to make. I remember seeing that trailer October 03. I, I want to bring this in to, to outline the difference between David and I. David saying, I would never gather the boys together to go see Polar Express. <laughs> October 03, a year before this movie comes out, I gather friends to go see Looney Tunes back in action at midnight. <laughs> sure. And I remember seeing the <laughs> teaser before this. Me not seeing this movie was an active decision. Like, I was soft sure. protesting this movie. I was like, it looks like dog shit. I hate it. This is fucking creepy. There's no way to adapt that book. Like, all this seems dumb. I think I was in the, like, is Zemeckis a fucking sap and a hack, period. As much as I love Back to the Future, and even though his movie right before this was Castaway, which I loved, I think I was like, fuck, Zemeckis lost the plot. I'm out of here. <laughs> like, I was like, I don't want to see this fucking thing. And I would, like, criticize, like, I would, like, but why would you see that? It looks like fucking garbage. Um... Which I was still very much in a period of sort of, A, you know, animation completism. B, I would rarely not see one of the top 10 box office releases of the year, if only for a sense of, like, cultural knowledge. It's rare that I wouldn't see something that grossed this much money, if only to figure out why the fuck is this popular. And C, Romilly's nine years younger than me, so I'm 15 when this comes out, but she's six And I would use having a six-year-old sister very often as an excuse to see children's movies that I wanted to see but didn't want to try to convince friends to go see on a fucking Friday night or whatever. And I remember just being like, Mom, that's on you. You fucking take her to see the Polar Express. I'm not boarding that shit. 
And I like no. actively abstained, never had any interest in seeing it. The, I feel like the only times I've ever considered it were in the years following the release of this movie when it would still get re-released every holiday season in IMAX 3D. Yeah. Like four or five years out from the original release, I remember considering, like, is it worth going to Lincoln Square to see this in IMAX 3D just because I'm a fan of 3D? But I never cared enough to do it. And then when we agreed to accept the results of the March Madness election and Zemeckis was elected our uh, fall miniseries subject without contention, um, I tracked down the the 3D Blu-ray. I bought the 3D Blu-rays for this, for Christmas Carol, and for The Walk. The Walk I saw in 3D in theaters. Christmas Carol and this I never saw in theaters. Beowulf I saw in theaters in 3D. Weirdly, has never been released in home video in 3D. But I felt like, I mean, because as you said, Joey, like most of this film's reputation, at least when it came out, was just, you got to give them credit. The 3D is impressive. Knowing it was never going to look as good at home, I still wanted to see this thing to th- in 3D because that seems to be one of the only elements that everyone agrees is positive in this movie. On that level, it is impressive, especially if you view how early it was. Like, it's it's the yep. first mainstream studio film to be released in IMAX 3D. Uh, it's kind of the first major digital 3D movie. Spy Kids 3D is the year before this, but that's like red and blue cardboard glasses that suck. And that sort of spurs the 3D revival because that movie does so well. And then after this, it, the 3D train is rolling, if you will. Yeah. Um, this movie is is both the first. It has is two major firsts. The other one is that is it is I think believe the first all like yes. digital capture. Absolutely. Real. So it is it, like a pretty it, yeah historic huge milestone movie. and a thing that is now the bedrock of so many of the blockbusters like everything. that totally dominate the yeah right. But like uncontested status is in the Guinness Book of World's Rec- World Records. It's the first mocap movie. I'll say this too. I not to get into. St- too deep in, within the first hour of what I assume will be a five-hour episode, but oh, Jesus. Yeah. there was a well, rumor circulating. We've one whole hour on the hot chocolate. But we have to. Well, that's what we're building up to, right? That's act two of five. Hot. hot. <laughs> well, we and, got it. Hot, hot. Sorry, go ahead. No, all I want to say is just on this train, there, there's just one rule. Never, ever let it cool. Um, <laughs> there, there is a, a sort of... A, a, there's always been a whisper, I feel, amongst the uh, visual effects community that I saw people circulating on Twitter recently. I forget who it was, but I don't want to cite them either oh, because they ended that, up that, that, deleting that Gollum, the tweet because it was I know too what you're hot. talking about. That yes. Gollum really was a visual effects performance, not a motion capture performance. That, that the tech that wasn't really accounts, there yet. Right, yeah. right. Because 2001 is Fellowship. Gollum barely appears. They don't even pretend that was motion captured, right? You just get the little shots in the shadow. And what right. you see, the model looks different. It's mostly just a little bit of voice. O2, two years before this, is Two Towers, which is the first real big mocap performance as presented to the public. And people are like, holy shit, this is fucking incredible. This is the beginning of everything. Now this technology, you could do anything. And then two years later, this movie comes out and looks like dog shit. And not just like it looks bad, which you could attribute to- Their faces don't move. They have wax faces. I was watching the- the 3D Blu-ray I bought is actually weirdly stacked with special features. But one of the things is they have like 10 minutes of scenes 
where it's side by side seeing three angles of Hanks on the motion capture volume alongside the the footage in the movie. And Hanks's performance is good. Like in just a sketch comedy way, when you're watching the live action footage, you're like, Hanks is doing really kind of impressive, yeah. subtle, broad work differentiating these characters. And when you see that side by side with what ends up on screen, like 5% of that is making it through the data. The technology is clearly so rudimentary to a degree where you can't just chalk it up to, well, it was hard to render that many surfaces or whatever. It's clear that just like the the intention of the performance is not being picked up. The receptors weren't there. And at the very least, it is known that Gollum was massaged a lot. But watching this movie, it really feels like they thought that they could do it by capturing the data. Then they looked at the data and there was barely anything to go off of there. It was just sort of like a chalk outline of a dead body. And then they sort of just animated based off the reference footage. I think Gollum is Andy Serkis's performance in the sense that it is people trying to reanimate what he did on the day. But right. I think there were... Uh, there was a lot invested in the idea that they had pulled the technology off, and so they attributed more of it to an automated system than perhaps was okay. accurate. Because watching okay. this movie, it's just impossible to believe that this big a step backwards happened two years <laughs> after that. It's impossible. I mean, is this ILM, though? Is it a different company? I think so, but even still, even still. But you remember at the time, the narrative was ILM. They did, like, the Mummy Returns. Like, they yeah. they suck. They're, they're being left in the dust and like Wingnut, the, the, the New Zealand guys have figured it out. That Wada, would be the argument yeah. against this. Right. Now, to move on, though, because I, there's something else I want to say. Uh, the book. Now, mm-hmm. Joey and I didn't read the book. Right, Joey? Book means nothing to you. Right? No, no, no. Right. Not at all. Now, Ben, sounds like you read the book. Forky, in my household, big fan mm-hmm. of the book. Huh. Uh, Griff, did you like this book? Was this a was this a book for you? It's from the writer of Jumanji, classic yeah, children's hu- book. Huge book for me. I just want to correct. This was not ILM. I believe this was Sony Image Movers. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, or Image enough. Works or whatever. What ends up yeah, becoming no, Sony Animation? But this was this was a bad year for ILM. They had Azkaban, which has really dodgy CGI. Uh, uh, Riddick, which does not hold up particularly well. Anyway, anyway, yes, the book was huge for me, but I remember even like, you know, unsurprisingly, I was a kid where anytime I read any picture book I liked, I would go, oh, they should make it into a movie. And then in my head, I would say, the movie should star blank. And blank would usually be Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, or Robin Williams. Like the three guys I liked in movies, right? Those guys make me laugh. They're good in family films. So I would read like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I'd be like, they should make this into a movie with Robin Williams. And I remember my dad just saying to me like, it doesn't have characters. <laughs> you can't, what? To- <laughs> it's Cloudy right. with a Chance of Meatballs. Come on, right. there's meatballs. Well, but yeah, but like, and the Cloudy movies are great, but they ended up wholesale creating a narrative just off of it's a place where food comes out of the sky. The book doesn't have characters. It's just sort of almost like a travel log of this weird know, town where the shit happens. And I feel like even as that kid who would want to see these movies, I knew like you can't make a Polar Express movie because the book is really just like from what I remember the opening narration that Tom Hanks does. And then it's about him getting whisked away on this train. And it's sort of like the middle section of where the wild things are, where it's just like images of rumpus happening, you know, and just saying like one or two sentences about what's happening on the train. But there's no incident. 
there's no conflict. He gets on the train. He goes to the North Pole. They get there very quickly. It's an easy train ride. <laughs> he meets Santa. Santa gives him the bell. He goes home. And the end of the book, the thing that always stuck with me is the idea that he says, I got it and I could listen to it. My parents couldn't hear it. And the book is being narrated by the adult version. And as I got older, I could still hear it. And then I had kids. And then one day I stopped being able to hear it. There's this sort of haunting quality to the book. You read it as a child when so much of what you're reading, like Christmas mythology, is about like Santa is real. We all believe in it and forever. And like Christmas movies are usually about grumpy adults needing to accept that Santa is real. And this book is the opposite, which is like, no, someday you're not going to need Santa anymore. He's just not going to be something that rings true to you anymore. Uh, And I watched this movie the whole time wondering how they were going to thread that needle of that ending, which is the most potent thing in the entire book. And instead, of course, the movie does the exact opposite. He's like, I'm a good kid, so I never grew up, and I heard the bell forever. Bye! (laughs) (laughs) And now here's Josh Groban. Right. Good night. My sister's (laughs) a narc. take it away! Yeah. You know, and I'll say, too, like, loving the book, I remember the illustration is like beautiful. 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 Like it's, and then that this movie is dog shit. Like it's trying to approximate the look of the sort of, uh, you know, oil paintings from the book. I mean, he was like, you know, in addition to being, I feel like this very big uh, children's book author in terms of how sort of sticky his ideas were like Jumanji and everything. He also was just this amazing artist and the book's, looked so much more high quality than other picture books at the time. And it was so effective in selling that, like, fuck, this book looks like Christmas spirit. Like, it's hard to read it and not feel a little festive. And Zemeckis' whole pitch on this, because Hanks buys the rights early. Hanks bought a lot of children's books in the 90s. Like, he bought Where the Wild Things Are and Ant Bully and this. Like, all these things that were in development hell for over a decade and then finally got made in the 2000s. Um... And he was like, I'm buying it because my kids love it. I think the book is good. I'm signing on. I'm going to play the conductor and Santa. And then no one ever fucking had any idea how to write a full movie out of this. Rob Brown was supposed to do it for some period of time. They go to Zemeckis. I think Zemeckis writes the script. One of the conditions on selling the rights to Hanks. Uh, what's the guy's name? Chris Van... Chris Van Arsdale? Uh, no, no. Uh, no, Chris um, Van Arsdale is one of the birthday boys. I keep on correcting <laughs> it in Van my Allsburg. mind. Chris, Chris Van Allsburg. Chris Van Allsburg. Shout out to Chris Van Arsdale. But uh, one of the conditions on selling the book to Hanks in the 90s was it cannot be animated. I don't want this turned into a cartoon. So I know that like Zemeckis signed on and then had to sell uh, right. on the idea that yeah. it should be animated. I think his argument was, A, I want it to look as much like your illustration as possible. That's going to be hard to do in live action. I think the illustrations are the whole mood. In animation, we can do that. And B, if we did it live action, it would cost a billion dollars. If we did it animated, it would only cost 160, which is this other weird thing Zemeckis was on about in the 2000s when he becomes like, you know, the fucking Henry Hill of mocap going from town to town telling everyone to try it is like, you can do these things that would cost too much money in live action. You can make them cheap. Like, that was this whole thing with Beowulf, was like, I went to Neil yeah. Gaiman and I said, write the most expensive movie you can think of, because we can make it. You can't do it in live action. Well, I think what's confusing about the fact that he, and you're I'm not, you're mostly going to get into this in the future episodes, but what's confusing about the fact that he 
kept doing mocap is that this first one you can sort of chalk up to like i believe that zemeckis and hanks like had this technology like put in front of them and they were showing in the like sort of rough like you know draft form like here's what we can do for you Mm -hmm. like here's what this shit can do and here's how fast it can do it and here's the things you can do which you've never been able to do right as like a director on a set like stuff that was it was too expensive or like a camera could never move this way or like you know here's all the amazing things you can do and they were like great what a dream um, camera moves and a, then, a huge part of it joey well, maybe yes. one of the biggest selling points yes. is a mechus you have to believe so i just i am perfectly willing to believe and give the benefit of the doubt of like he was showing shit where it's like look how amazing this is going to be yeah and then it did not work but what's confusing there is that he why he just then kept trying and trying but that's going to probably going to be more of a uh a topic that's, for your future episodes yeah. but um uh but in this one, and this is, you know, gets to part of what I sort of, uh, what I love about this, uh, what I love about this movie is the moments where you, the moments where you get it, the moments where you get like why he wanted to do this is stuff like, uh, the sequence with the ticket, like the one shot sequence with the ticket flying out of the train and then flying all over, like all the world, all over going through this whole journey where it's like in a bird's nest and it's like in a pack of wolves and it's like flying around and all this stuff. And it's all one shot in those moments. I get it. I'm like, I get why this seems so cool to you. It's just like the Spielberg long shots in, um, in, in Tintin where it's right. like, he's just like, I can do these things that like I could never have dreamed of. It's it's wild, though, because I feel like the Tintin shot is the example of that that works. And I haven't seen Christmas Carol, but Beowulf, he does an almost identical shot. I remember like a long overhead shot that I think is from the perspective of like a bird or something that ends up like traversing across land, goes into a tavern. There's like a woman with her hand on her hip. It goes in the crook in between her arm and her waist. Like it goes through a glass. Like he's just doing all this fucking David Fincher keyhole, like panic room shit. Um, But it's similarly, I remember, and I like Beowulf when I saw it in theaters. I remember the audience having an adverse reaction to seeing that in 3D IMAX, where it was actually just like Mm. fucking too much. Like, too fucking much. Slow it down, Bobby. And Spielberg with Tintin is smart about trying to make it look and operate like something that could be a very complicated shot, even though it couldn't really, you know? It's like he has it function as if it were on tracks, even though it's impossible for tracks to be that long. David, do you you like that long shot? Yeah, sure, whatever. I mean, it's something. <laughs> I like it when there's... Look, look. we got to dig into the plot uh, or whatever, uh, I guess, but... Um, I mean, I don't yeah. know if I've ever seen a film that is more exclusively based around happenstance. This there is just a movie where happen. every 10 minutes, a thing happens. None right. of it has any correlation to anything else. There's no reason why anything happens. There's no reason why this happens to these characters. Like, I've I've rarely seen a movie not even attempt to make the argument for why these characters are at the center of the movie. You know, it's just like, here are just some kids. They've been asked right. to come on this train for no apparent reason. There's not a Poor unifying kid. thing. He's got to be by himself. Just how it is. 
Right, but it's not like, oh, they all have very specific lessons they need to learn until the end where he sort of tries to retrofit lessons onto them that don't really feel like were character defects. And also, I I don't even feel like they learned them. Right, yeah. Well, the Uh, central to... The central problem, I think, that creates all of those weird plot contrivances and that makes it all a mess is the conductor. And it's because they could not figure out, they never decided, and this sort of gets to the weird tonal confusion of the movie as a whole. They never decided, is the conductor a kind grandfatherly figure who looks after these kids and is like guiding them on this beautiful journey? Or is he a monster? Yeah. (laughs) He's a train fucker. He's a classic train fucker. Yeah. Chaotic uh-huh. evil. I vote for chaotic evil. I think he's like a trickster god. Like he's like a Loki type. You know what I mean? Like he's a mischief maker. But like I was watching this this behind the scenes side by side footage and and like to answer that very question, Joey, like what was Hanks' intention in this performance? Is there something that's just not coming across? And watching it, it's like, no, he was trying to be brisk. He was trying to play this weird sort of emotionally distant, like sort of mm-hmm. like blunt, you know, uh, sort of authority figure. Um, but when you filter that through very rudimentary technology that also makes him a lifeless robot. So there's not even any sort of comedy to him playing like a grump. You know, it's just sort of like he really does feel like some malicious force. He feels um, he's mean. He's mean to the kids, Very constantly mean. yelling at them. Um, his ru- yes. The rules of his train are 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 all over the place and make no I'm, sense. I'm sorry. There's um, just one rule. It's never really <laughs> cool. But go on. <laughs> no, no. My favorite thing is that he repeats the note both with Hero Boy. Have we said that he's Hero Boy yet? But that's the oh, Hero Boy is his ben, name. Ben, his name may I Hero please Boy. read some character names for you? The poor kid is eventually named as Billy. That's the only one who ever gets a proper name in the entire film. Okay? He's the gay kid, let's be real. But anyway. (laughs) um. Tom Hanks plays Hero Boy. Okay? Tom Hanks, is, as an adult man, did all the motion capture. And that early teaser that you mentioned, Joey, when that teaser came out, if you rewatch it online, it is Tom Hanks' voice as Hero Boy. I think they thought they could just pitch up Tom Hanks's voice and use that for the movie. And at some oh, they later point, with that. That they said, great. we got to get a kid. Cause there's a weird, <laughs> he goes like, well, you're coming aboard. And then you just hear Tom Hanks go, who? Like there's just, <laughs> where? Is she brave girl? Is that who she is? What's uh, her name? She's hero, hero girl. girl. She's hero, hero girl. girl. Eddie Deason is know it all. Then lonely boy who later gets called Billy. Yes. And that's it, right? Uh, yes. And then it's conductor, all like to- toothless boy, elf general, right. Santa, conductor, hobo, <laughs> Scrooge puppet, puppet, their narrator. Like they all just have titles other than, of course, Smokey and Steamer. The two haphazard. Well, we'll, we'll get to that train dynamic duo. But yeah. um, I think the other thing I was need to say about the conductor is that he repeats the same mistake twice in a row, despite the fact that apparently his whole job in the world is running the Polar Express, which is that both with the hero boy and then again with uh, the with the sad boy, um, when they are initially like disturbed by this train that is materialized out of nowhere and like don't know what to do because they're children and they're like, is this real? What should I have? What should I get on? 
He's just like, all right, fuck you then. And he's just like, gets <laughs> yeah. back on the train and they start moving. He's got no bedside <laughs> manner. It's also, there's something very unsettling about that scene when Kira Boy watches Billy the Lonely Boy not get on the train, right? Right, right. Where, where you see the distant window version from behind of essentially the scene we saw 10 minutes earlier and the conductor is saying word for word the exact same thing. Like, there's something very bizarre about the performance of it, where he's in the exact same time going like, well, are you coming aboard or not? Like, it's the exact same. <laughs> it's like being on a theme park ride where you can hear the robot that's like a mile ahead of you saying the right. dialogue that you'll hear in a couple of minutes. <laughs> right, right, right. It's a look. It's a. It's a kids' movie, blah blah, whatever. But like internal logic is is None. important, um, nonetheless. And th so that's where it, it just gets lost with this conductor character because then later he's mad that they pull the emergency brake, and then when he finds out that they did it so the sad boy could get on the train, he's like, "Oh well, what a noble thing that was." And right. I'm like, "You just told that kid to go fuck himself a second ago." Right. Like this <laughs> character makes no sense. Um, and is, uh, yeah, it's like, he's, uh, not to make light of this, but it's almost, it's almost like he's like bipolar or something. Absolutely. He's like, what his mood is to, or his attitude towards these kids is like different in every scene or even within the same scene. Uh, bipolar and it's really express. destabilizing as you watch this movie. Sorry. What, what did, what did you just say? I said bipolar <laughs> express, David, I believe there's a point on your desk. You might want to hold up right about now. Oh, thank Oh, five comedy. Wow. I never <laughs> thought. Wow, God. Oh, um, boy, oh, boy, it, it oh, is, boy. It, I feel like there is a, a classic children's storytelling trope of, like, the adult authority figure who seems like a menacing asshole and then mm -hmm. ultimately reveals to have ulterior, positive, thoughtful motivations. You know, there's, like, the Willy Wonka yes. thing of, like, I'm trying Willy to trick Wonka. you, but I care. It's all a test. Yeah. It's kind of a, a, a Harry Potter trope that comes in right. a lot. You know, Dumbledore is very hot and cold often. You know, yeah, classic, like, trying to win your parents' attention and affection dynamic, I guess. I don't know. But this guy is just such an asshole. And there's some indications as you get to the end of the movie, and he becomes much uh, kinder um, in the sort of last Santa Claus part, that that might have been some idea they had. But it's just too all over the place and there's too many problems like the fact that in the latter half of the movie, he he apparently has noticed the fact that he's lost like four of these children on a North Pole, but didn't he doesn't deign to do anything about it. Like, yeah, it's like just too many. <laughs> um, but again, that yeah, so it's not clear, which just speaks to how haphazardly this uh, screenplay was, uh, well, there's was thrown also together. This whole fucking thing of like, so Hank's options, the screenplay himself. He goes, the, the I would like to play the conductor. I'm sorry, yes, options the book himself. I would like to play the conductor and Santa. So when Rob Reiner's working on this movie, when he brings Zemeckis on, everyone has the clear marching orders. Hanks is going to play the conductor and Santa, which means the conductor now needs to be a major character, which, I mean, who the fuck is the conductor? Who gives a shit? I, I don't read that book and go like, I want to know what's going on in the front engine. You know, I'm sure David does, but it's like the, the <laughs> train do. is means to an end to meet Santa Claus. The book is not that much about a perilous train ride and certainly not that much about this inscrutable conductor. But by him signing on to it, the guy needs to have a lot of real estate. Then Zemeckis has the idea. What if you played every character? So they right. tested out 
What if he's literally every single character? And they said, Hanks found it too exhausting. So then they scale it back down to a manageable (laughs) seven. Uh, It's five. He plays the conductor, the hobo, Santa, hero boy, Scrooge puppet narrator. Hero Boy's dad, like, right. I think, you know, briefly. Right, Hero, Hero Boy, Hero Boy's dad, right, narrator. Um, but I, I seen, I was, like, starting to dig into this there, because watching this movie, it is so devoid of any meaning, right? It doesn't even have, like, it, a, a, a consistent uh, uh, theology in and of itself, let alone relation to anything that anyone believes in in the world, other than the very abstract idea of belief, that there's... In the train, I guess the sequence where they lose the pin and everything's going haywire, you mm. can briefly see a flux capacitor. Mm. Combined Great. with the fact that this movie is set in 1955, the year that Marty goes back to, there is an online rabbit hole of people who believe that the conductor is the grown-up version of the hero boy. No. Because they, no, no. But, but, fuck this. David, David here's Cut the thing. Out. I, don't, I don't buy this for a second, but I think it is so telling that in a way that's not like, you know, oh, people want to read that fucking... Uh, Andy's mom is Jesse's owner from Toy Story 2, right, which is right. just like, there's no evidence of that there. People just like the idea of having a clever take. This movie almost needs you to come up with some fucking unifying right. thread. Like, right. I, there's desperation of like, I don't know, I guess, okay, so the director makes a reference to his own movie. That explains why it's time travel. That explains the conductor's behavior. Yeah. You uh, know he's nice because it's himself. But none of that's supported it, by the it. movie. The more likely explanation... Um, you know, the only way that you can try to make sense of why this movie is just just strings together a series of like of incidents that have no relation to one another. And it's so totally weird and all of that is is that it, f- it feels like what Zemeckis was more interested in was like what he could pull off visually and yeah. that they weren't that concerned, um, weren't that yeah. concerned with the screenplay. Yeah, I, I would believe that. But it is then interesting I guess they just sort of like, it's just events. They just sketch it. I was like, so the train will arrive. That's an event. Hot chocolate. That's an event. The ticket. That's right. Like, you know, they just, they're just like, it'll just be all set pieces where we get to do crazy things with the camera. And it's all wonder. It'll be all wonder for the kids. They'll never seen anything like it. It's spectacle. It's Christmas, right? Like that's how you, that's how you do this. Right. What weirdos like me who are into this movie are left with is that you have like a musical you throw you throw in a musical number. So they're like, what can happen next? Like, all right, a musical number. What's what's it going to be? It's going to be about hot chocolate. Like, I don't know. And a bunch of waiters come out and they create floating (laughs) tables and they do flips and they serve hot chocolate. And Tom Hanks uh, sings and says the word uh, chocolate really weird. Um, And because it's not like a visual like wonder in the way that they had intended or hoped it's instead yeah. just it's very unsettling and um it's just a, it's i don't i don't know how to it's transfixing it. you're clearly into it i mean you sent us an extended youtube version of this song saying we had to listen to it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i refuse to listen by the way uh, oh did you watch the other video though ben no. You All right, you're in, you should yeah. watch that video. Yeah. But anyway, um we'll get to that. Yeah, so then it's just uh, right. So the it's instant. So the musical number is one uh example and then there's the whole uh crazy ticket sequence. 
Um, and then you have the hobo, uh, which is just God Whoa, knows what Oh, boy. <laughs> There's a whole but, lot but going like, on with the you hobo. S- you speak to another, like... Uh, uh, who is the conductor? Why does he make the choices he does? What are the rules of this train? Uh, Hero Girl doesn't have a ticket, so he drags her off the train, above the train, in the middle of the cold. It seems violent. The racial implications of it, especially for the time in which it's set, incredibly uncomfortable, and the reveal is, no, he promoted me to be the conductor? It's a train for crying out loud. It's be, it's made for you to move through it uh, without having to go to the roof. Why is Billy seemingly in the luxury car? Like Billy's in like the VIP car by himself. Right. For Which a good chunk of the movie. All of it is so strange. It's also just like this no character in this movie has any interiority, right? No character in this has any They don't have ex- Interiority. They don't have <laughs> facial expressions. <laughs> Forget interiority. Got a creepy hobo who lives on top of the train has appeared. So, okay, like, if the point of this, if the whole, like, message of this movie has been, like, you gotta believe, like, this yeah. kid just needs to, just needs to believe. Everyone's telling him you just gotta have faith. Then, like, you're gonna have this hobo figure come along and, like, maybe be, the like, the devil on his shoulder. You know, maybe right. be more right. like, yeah. no, kid, like, trust your, trust your uh, instincts. It's all a lie. It's all a lie. But that isn't really what he does. No, the no. hobo's super magical. Go ahead. What does he represent? Please. The hobo is the key to everything. Okay, so this is another online rabbit hole I went down that some people theorize that the hobo is supposed to represent the Holy Ghost in a way that mm. I presume is Santa Claus is the father and the conductor's the son or Hero Boy's the son. Maybe Hero Boy's the son. Yeah, I don't know. But it does feel like you watch this movie and you're like, there has to be some codex that deciphers at least what their intentions were. Like the whole time I'm watching, I was like, what does this feel like? Oh, it feels like watching some weird propaganda recruitment film for a cult. And they just keep on using this buzzwords or this language. And I'm like, this is all like circular. What's what's the thing that unlocks it for me of what they're actually saying? You have to believe in like, you know, you have to believe in the magic of this train. But and again, not to get overly obsessive about the plot, please, like about please. like the plot mechanics. But like you have to believe in the magic of this train, this train, which we then discover for the sake of them having a big action sequence is run is being driven by two like total morons who don't know how to drive a train. And and they end up like uh, end up in like mortal peril mm-hmm. and the kids have to like rescue the train. And it's just sort of like. It just, it just the whiplash of like this is a magic train that takes you magically to the North Pole, but also it's very poorly run. Right, it's barely gonna make it. Right, we are on the edge of our seat. <laughs> but also, like, okay, unifying thread, like in, in a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory way, where it's like each of these kids has like uh, uh, an inherent sin, right, an inherent character flaw. They represent extreme archetypes of like uh, youths, you know. Uh, these kids have no personality, but they also just have no wants other than, yeah, I guess I'll get on a train. Like, there's no reason why they're collected other than the fact that all of them happen to live directly next to train tracks. What a fucking nightmare. How close all these houses are to train tracks. Because I, this movie doesn't seem to imply, like, oh, these are magical tracks I, that only appear. They- they might I, be magic. I couldn't. I, think it might I be couldn't magic. figure that out. I, I, it, it's plausible that they are magic train tracks. I 
we never really know what his normal life is like, right? Fine. I will give the movie that one thing, but this is the point I wanted to make. You hear Please. Hanks as an adult saying the thing of like, I lay there in bed hoping for the one noise. What do we know about this kid? He really wants Santa to show up. Then he hears a noise. He goes out his door. He sees the silhouette of what he thinks is Santa Claus jingling and jangling. No, it's just his father, played by the same actor who will later play Santa Claus, carrying his sister, played by Robert Zemeckis' new wife. <laughs> and then the kid goes back to bed disappointed, right? And this is as much character shading as he's ever given, which is apparently this incident broke his spirit. Being confused for one moment that perhaps the shadow of his father was in fact Santa Claus, the rejection of that moment killed his belief in Santa Claus enough that when he wakes up an hour later and is told to get on a train, he's dubious. When he gets on the train, he's dubious. When people start communicating things to Santa Claus about him, he's dubious. When he gets to the North Pole, he's dubious. When he meets the elves, he's dubious. When he's inside Santa's fucking toy sack, He's dubious. And then he meets Santa. He sees the bell. He doesn't hear it. And then they go, I think you got to believe harder. And then he finally decides to start believing. What? What? What is this fucking kid's deal? What made him turn off believing that fast? What made him turn it on again that quickly? Why is he so resistant to the best evidence anyone will ever get of Santa Claus existing? And then it's just about how he was fully converted into the dogma of Santa. And while right. all the other adults go on and pursue other interests, he just keeps on ringing this bell for the rest of his fucking life. End of movie. There isn't as much to say about the latter section once we're in the North Pole, but it is, again, kind of weird because most of the space that they move through in the extended, fairly boring sequence where they're like trying to get back to the, the town square um, are all huge, like empty, like barren spaces where you'll occasionally see a couple of elves like working at a computer or whatever. And it's like, it's kind of bleak. Like it's kind of, it doesn't really, it's not really a very happy environment. Um, and it's very blank. Um, and just sort of, I don't know, it's like very like, uh, industrial. Um, and so again, you're just left at a total loss of what, this this movie is is like going for if it's like every now and then they'll just for fun throw in a little bit of commentary of like oh wouldn't it be funny if the elves were just kind of like guys from new jersey or like working in an office and they're like this did it um but then it's like no no but actually they're magical um and it's all and it's all amazing and just forget we did that that was just that was just for fun it also is wild and it raises so many more questions seeing like the physical structures of the North Pole itself and being like, they have like tall buildings and like a clock tower. Like, I feel right. like most depictions of the North Pole are like, here is Santa's house and here are the barracks where the elves sleep. And his house is also where the workbenches are. You know, it's just like a little collection of like cottages or whatever in the middle of the snow. And it's like, no, this is like the streets are paved with cobblestone. There are multi-story buildings. Like, are there businesses? Do the elves like populate this town? Are there elf baristas who don't make toys? Or is this just a factory town where there's one fucking job and they get one not, night a year one to cut loose? Purse, or there's two people. There are, right. th in fact, there are four people. Well, five if you include. All right, there's five people in the North Pole city. Santa Claus himself, sure. The conductor. He lives there May the rest of the year, right? Yes. Yeah. Sure. Male elves, 
female elves, yes. Steven Tyler. Those yes. are the five. Those are yeah. the yeah, five. Where's forms. Mrs. Claus? What the fuck? <laughs> I don't know. But we I, see male and female elves. There are female elves that have breasts. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're exactly the same as the male elves. Correct. There is Steven Tyler. Yep. And of course, there's the two Tom Tom Hanks characters. That's it. That's who we got. That's another thing where, like, aside from just obviously, this is a Tom Hanks movie. We need to give the audience enough Tom Hanks. We need to give Tom enough reasons to want to be in this movie. Most children's stories in particular where roles are double cast, it has some sort of thematic meaning. Like the classic Peter Pan thing of, like, having the same actor play Captain Hook, you know? Um, Or, you know, the Wizard of Oz thing of, like, mirroring the guys at the farm to... The, the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion and the Scarecrow, whatever. Yes. This is just like th- the relationship between the hobo, the conductor, Santa Claus, and the boy's dad is very odd, especially because they all are different digital renders of Tom Hanks, especially because <laughs> they all recognizably sound like Hanks and look like Hanks. They're just, the sliders are adjusted a little bit. Just another way in which the movie feels like sort of an early version of them with this technology, like trying out some things. And one of the things that they thought would be cool and crazy is like, what if Tom Hanks played all these characters? We'll make them look different. So it'll work. And then they were like, well, we're never not doing that again. Well, <laughs> well, except but, then, they, then they do with Jim Carrey. But I've never seen that. And I, never I haven't looked. seen that either. But that tracks for me conceptually of like, oh, get the same actor to play Scrooge and play the three ghosts. Like that. Sure. Works that makes more sense. In, in a way. Right. Because it's like he's confronting aspects of himself. This makes a little less sense unless, as you say, Griffin, you just kind of try and go bananas deep with it where you're like, and this is clearly about Jesus. I, I, right. You know, like there, there has to be something going on. This is a back to the future allegory. I don't know. Like you're just right. like you're just desperately figuring it or out. Or you could try to make it like, well, but Tom Hanks plays his dad. So is he like, is he like seeing his dad and all these people? Except you barely see the dad. So That's that idea problem. wouldn't register. They, like if there was anything with the fucking dad at the beginning, other than him killing his son's spirits by merely <laughs> walking through a door then maybe there'd be some meat on the bone there. But as it is, you're like, if it's all just reflections of this kid's perception of his dad, there's not enough grounding to go off of there. Are they all supposed to be different depictions of God? You understand running to that as a theory because you need something to hold on to. So, or but is, are they all reflections of the boy? I mean, it's... Joey, what, do you have a grand unified theory or are you more just fascinated with this as a strange... Chaos thing? reigns. Yeah, right. Yeah, just like a weird thing. I'm fascinated in the sense that like I can't make any argument for the uh the order and arrangement in which these individual sequences come one <laughs> after the other, but every single one of them individually I love. Like I mm. love watching like the the weird musical number. I love watching that the whole that long ticket shot and that whole like ticket like sequence even though it doesn't make any sense. The really fancy camera work in the uh, train sequence where they have to like turn the train around on the ice and then yeah, they have the, to outrun uh, the water. I think inarguably the best sequence in the movie. The, the I think ice, the, the you lake, would the lake, say that. The yeah. lake sequence is really cool. I love that. I, that was fun. I think it also helps that it's the sequence le- least dependent on human characters. Humans, exactly. That's why it's cool. <laughs> yes. And it's just a weird idea and it's something you could never do in, re- you know, in a live action yeah. movie. Uh, but uh, carry on, Jeff, finish your thought. That's basically it. And um, going back to the the link that you uh, 
you had mentioned that I had sent to you guys. I okay. had a me- one right. thing that I had a memory of there being more of, which in fact, when I we actually realized, I realized that there's actually fairly little of this, was a ton of physical humor with the two like two train drivers. Um, one of whom is played by a uh, character actor, Michael Jeter. And then I, I don't remember who plays the other one. No, he plays Joey, both. He plays both He plays of them, both, yes. But then weirdly, someone else is credited with the voices. I was trying to parse this because there's pretty much four people credited for each character. I think because of doubles who needed to be doing mocap off of Hanks when he was playing one character. The children were largely redubbed from the adult actors who played them. Because, like, Scolari is playing Lonely Kid, but then there's another kid who did mocap for Hanks to act across. But then Jimmy Bennett did the voice. Like, there's all this shit like that. But Jeter is credited as motion capture for both of them. Someone else is credited as voiceover for both of them. Jeter dies summer 03. So I wonder if it's a situation where A, his audio wasn't usable, or B, they needed someone to fill in the gaps of what they didn't have. Because both of the voices sound like Jeter. It's like they pointedly hired someone to sound like Yeah, it might have, right. It might have just been that he died before they could finish his work or whatever. Right, yeah. Right. So yet as yet another example of something that happens in only one scene, the two train drivers, okay, now I realize they're both him, which is even better, um, are like, do this physical humor where they're like pulling on each other pulling one's pulling on the other beards and they're all like flying around the uh the train car and as they try to get control at what point they like lose gravity and one, one of them eats the pin all that stuff and all that kind of wacky physical humor is not really present anywhere um anywhere else a whole lot but that is far and right. away my favorite part of the movie that was the one time where i felt like the movie had some fucking lifeblood it's super fun and i feel like as much as it's a brief thing who knows how much work Michael Jeter actually put into this thing. It feels like a moment or one of the rare moments where you can actually sort of feel like what the performer like, like really brought, brought to this in a way that actually does come through in the technology, because as you will have seen in the link that I sent that it, to you guys, that a uh, video, yes. which I'm sure you we will have post to talk about it along mm-hmm. with this. Michael it. Jeter was an incredible physical oh. performer who one like of the all time his- physical comedians. Yeah who could move his body around in insane ways, kind of like Bill Irwin-esque. And uh, just this sort of, you get a little taste of that. And then it also makes me sad to think about because I feel like at this moment in his uh, career, uh, Michael Jeter was sort of having like kind of a a moment where he was kind of becoming a go-to character actor. Yeah. Guy yeah, and these he'd been was kind in of Jurassic, starting to get roles right. like this. Go on, David. Right, because he'd been in Jurassic Park three. He'd been in Open Range. He Green he was Mile. To pop, it, well, it was post Green Mile. I think yeah. he started to pop up in more movies in bigger character roles. It was clear that like whatever. Right, he had like crossed Hollywood's desk. Is like, oh, this guy is a uh, this guy's a real spark plug. Like, this is a great guy to have. But it's also is, so know, wild that at, at, by that point he was like a decade after having won two Emmys and a Tony, like he was like this very awarded actor who somehow kind of never got his due. Yes. Um, And so Joey sent us to, to be clear uh, this um, clip of his performance at the Tony's uh, 1990, Joey, is it the 1990 Tony's or 89? Like it's the 1990 Tony's. Yeah. Right. Um, where he won, 
Well, first he performs a number from the musical Grand Hotel. Uh, and then pretty good. I watched it. It fucking uh, watched it. It rules. Uh, so yeah. Joe, I mean, Joey, you, Joey, you talk about it for a second. In fact, you're the one who sent us this clip. It is a yeah. So the well, this video is a one-two of him performing this number, and then later in the night, him winning the Tony for uh, I, th- I think best feature right actor after. in a musical because he yeah. was still like, right off after, stage. Because yes, right. he's still yeah. he's in the wings. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the performance is just a perfect encapsulation of everything that he could do, as well as a wonderful encapsulation of what musical theater can do, even within a show that. Uh, I'm not super familiar for the, with the show, but I don't. The, many people would say the show as a whole, Grand Hotel, although it has its fans, is not kind of a stodgy great. show. Yes, yes. I mean, based on a very stodgy old movie, right? It's got its following, um, but this number "We'll Take a Glass Together" is just like this joyous burst of energy of like these two guys like dancing around with the uh, with a big ensemble behind them, but mainly Jeter just throwing his body around the stage like he's a rag doll just in especially by the end and then just kick lining at the end and it's like the energy and the joy that it brings you to watch it especially given um that you don't expect someone who looks like him and has a physical presence like him to be able to do it um and then of course is followed by his speech where he talks about um having had problems with alcohol uh, and drug use i mean that's the thing like you see him do this joyous performance Yes. I mean, go, go ahead, Griffin. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Michael Jeter looks like someone you could see in, like, a shelter. You know? I mean, he's sure. he's so yeah, scrawny. He's, he's got this push right, broom yeah. mustache. He looks like he was born with aggressive male pattern baldness. Like, everything about him is so sort of physically odd. And then he's got this sort of folksy voice. But, yeah. yes, as a performer, he so often could do things like this. And he was also on Sesame Street at this time playing Mr. Noodle and then was yeah. succeeded by Bill Irwin. They very much were similar right. physical performers in terms of comedy. Uh, and he did end up playing a lot of creeps in movies. But it, 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 seeing that performance, which is just like pure, magical, showbiz, razzle-dazzle, and then hearing him talk about his demons is a pretty uh, uh, emotionally affecting combination it's incredible it happens to be the case that polar express was his final credit uh worth mentioning mostly in the sense of like that it's just a little like uh a glimpse at like what more like amazing work like that he was going to keep doing if he would have kept being sort of uh pulled up by hollywood right because he was he was only 50 right yeah he, he was he, not he that died old, right? hiv related complications Ben, if I can just put him in perspective for you, uh, he, of course, also was uh, the scummy clown who was Airbud's original owner in Airbud. Sure. Okay. Yeah, yep. That's probably his biggest film role. He's, <laughs> well, he's also, he's in Fear and Loathing, Ben, which I have to imagine you've seen. <laughs> Am I wrong? Um, yeah, I had the poster and influenced right. me to take acid a bunch of times. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 I'm not sure. I can't remember who he plays in it, but he is in that as well. He was in a lot of stuff. Oh yeah, I was wrong too. He only won one Emmy for Evening Shade, but he was nominated, uh, nominated three consecutive times, right. years. And that show was like this overhyped, overexpensive CBS sitcom where everyone on the show was like a star and he was the guy who kind of broke out from it. But then, as you say, that's like 92. And then it takes the better part of the the decade for him to start really translating to to movies. And it felt like he was really starting to uh, enter an exciting period of 
career when he passed. Watching this sequence, A, I think these are the two best designed characters in the film. I think, what are their names? Steamer and fucking Smoke Stack or whatever. Uh, <laughs> that sounds right. Smokey and Steamer. Yes. I was pretty close. You uh, were pretty close. Smokey and Steamer, I feel like, are the only two characters who are on the right side of caricature. Like, he really exaggerates their physical characteristics, the lankiness of one, the roundness of the other, to the point where it conquers the uncanny valley. Um, And also, it's like, here's a performer who is hyper-physical, who is capable of moving like a cartoon, allowing you to really use the effect of motion capture in a way that the technology can actually translate versus Hanks trying to do very, very subtle mannered performances, <laughs> you know, like it just doesn't connect like watching them just and knowing that he's doing slapstick with himself. It's just like, I don't know. I was into that and it underlined for me what I feel like this movie is closest to, but this scene is the only time it gets there is, uh, and excuse me for throwing out this reference point in a year where where this was taken from us, David. But what mm. this movie kind of feels like it's trying to emulate to me, and I would not be surprised if it was a direct inspiration, like a noted inspiration for Zemeckis. But this feels like the early Disneyland rides, like the rides that were like World's Fair rides that then became the flagships in the 50s and 60s, like Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion and the storybook rides, where they're just like a slow vehicle moving through very immersive scenes where a lot of weirdly three-dimensional caricature mannequins are like acting out little vignettes. And there's like sort of a story, but not really. You're just getting glimpses of like different set pieces, but it has that sort of old-timey vibe to it and a similar kind of uh, spirit to it. And those two characters feel like they're on the right side of like the best sort of comical pirates in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, uh, which fucking rules. But then the second, you know, they get to the fucking North Pole, I'm like more bored than I've ever been. Like that's my peak enjoyment at the movie. And then it falls off a cliff. Yes. He has no take on the elves. You know, he's nothing, nothing funny he's doing with that. It's not like, there's no, like, what's the name of the guy who, Played all the Oompa Loompas. Um, deep Roy. Uh, the deep, deep Roy. We, we stand right. There's no Oompas. like Deep Roy type like idea where they're like, what if we did this? Like, it's just, they're just, I don't know, they're small and they look weird. There's Charles Fleischer as the one like curmudgeonly lead elf. Charles Fleischer, who's a legendary stand up in the voice of Roger Rabbit, is the one who's like, ah, come on, we got to get these kids moving. The one who's like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like a watching foreman. the kid on TV or whatever. Right. But I, I hate all that shit. Hate I it. hate that shit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the elves elves suck. Enough, enough with this, like, he has this <laughs> army of creeps. I, yeah. I hate this shit. And again, like, it's fine when it's like Will Ferrell, because then the joke is, sure. isn't this whole elf thing weird? Right. You know, like, you know, that then it's he's making it the joke. But like, they they're creepy. And like. I can't what, they, stop they asking make questions about like, the, what, what uh, the autonomy do? of the elves, too. Like, right. if, when yeah, elves are introduced weird. in a movie like this, I'm like, do they have their freedom? Is this indentured servitude? Where do they come from? Right. Um, yeah, it's all upsetting. I, I mean, I hit the, the um, pause button when they got to the North Pole because I was curious. I was like, wow, are, so there are like five minutes of the movie left? And when I saw there were 50 minutes left, <laughs> a, a chill ran down my spine. I mean, 
Joey, is there anything you stick up for in this sort of? Because like, there's there's the the thing where they get stuck in the sack. There's you know, like oh, it's a lot. Well, I would like stretching. to defend the giant sack. Yeah, that's the one takeaway I big, have. Right. Let's that have sack a sack lives Pretty up big. to the logic of Santa <laughs> having all those presents. It is big as hell. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Um. Again, like the sort of bits the more grounded bits that they try to throw in like, Oh, the elves are doing kind of a bad job, like taking this big sack and like dropping it on the, on the, on the Santa sleigh, like, Oh, and they almost like kill people in the process. Um, <laughs> it doesn't land because it's so confused um, because it's going to be followed up immediately by Santa appearing and being like this magical uh, sort of like, uh, friendly ethereal. grandfather right yes yeah yeah Pre- well no more than friendly grandfather they yeah. give him a godlike presence um and you can't have your cake and eat it too well they, they did but you can't do that and then also be like by the way this organization that he runs it's a fucking mess that being said i guess i would even having to completely contradict what i just said which is in the spirit of this movie even having just said that i do find uh one the the sequence once uh, Santa appears properly uh, after Hero Boy is briefly very upset because he can't see him through a crowd and we're like, the fuck you, what's the problem? Wait for him to walk closer. <laughs> but once he actually appears and starts talking to him, I don't know, it has a kind of a, it's, it has a kind of, a, some, there's something about it. I don't know, well, there's Hanks something sort of good. hypnotizing about it. Hanks almost makes the Santa scene work. I agree with you. But then you look at what Santa Claus actually says in these scenes, in this scene. This bell is a wonderful symbol of the spirit of Christmas, as am I. Just remember, the true spirit of Christmas lies in your heart. That means next to nothing. That's a (laughs) negative statement. You somehow know less than when he started speaking. He says four things that are completely antithetical to one another. He says like this physical object is proof and I in front of you am proof, but also the proof doesn't matter. All that matters is what's in your heart. (laughs) All the different messages or takeaways that you could be. He just says all of them. It's so convoluted. I mean, he's even saying like this bell is physical proof of my existence but i don't matter i'm just an idea what do i represent the spirit the spirit of what me christmas (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing i i kept saying because i was i would say it to forky i would say to emma like who i was sort of like yeah like having like talking about her dad's life i'm like what does this movie think christmas is like I, i like it's not about being good to your fellow man no. or, you know, like what, you know, what like the spirit of giving or anything no. like that. It's just like, you'll get a present. Is that, it's, is that what it is? It's bizarre that it extrapolates nothing else from Christmas <laughs> other than getting presents. And like the arc of Billy, the lonely kid is he lives on the wrong part of town. He is poor. He doesn't like Christmas because he can't trust it. I guess the implication is because Christmas sucks for him. So they convince him to get on the train. They make him sit in a, tr- a car separate from everyone else. <laughs> yeah. That's in his nicer. Ratty PJs. 
which feels like some kind of mocking thing. Then he sings a song about how much he loves Christmas. And they're like, Christmas, great, huh? And he's like, I don't know. I don't like it. I don't trust it. Why were you just singing that song? Then they go, do you want to meet Santa? He's like, I don't know. I should probably stay here in the train. Christmas isn't all it's cracked up to be. And then at the end of the movie, he's the first kid dropped off. There's a present there. And he holds it up victorious as proof that anyone can get toys. The weird rules once they get to the North Pole of like, you know how our rituals work, right? The most important thing is that Santa has to give out the first gift before Christmas can start in earnest, before he can begin his flight. That's why we bring kids here on a train so that he can give the gift to one of the kids. How does he pick which kid he gives it to? I don't know. It's the one whose name is Hero Boy. That sort of helps. Right. <laughs> then the, the kids are so over eager that they decide to break into Santa's lair to rummage through his sack themselves, which then leads to Christmas almost getting fucked up. That's cold And then they experience no repercussions. It's coal-worthy. Some coal-worthy shit. Can I read this quote from Manola Dargis's review, which I remember at the time because I feel like she was pretty new at that point in 2004. Um, uh, at the time, certainly. Yeah. She at the times, yeah. Uh. It, it, the headline is, do you hear sleigh bells? Nah, just Tom Hanks and some train. <laughs> Which is great. But this is the, the chunk that has been burned in my brain forever. I just remember my dad being like, you gotta read this Polar Express review. She just folded this movie like laundry. She bodied them. <laughs> he wasn't using those terms, but it was just like, this know, is savage, right? Um, it, the line is, uh, here we go. Uh, Tot surely won't recognize that Santa's big entrance in front of the throngs of frenzied elves and awestruck children directly invokes, however unconsciously, one of Hitler's Nuremberg rally entrances in Lenny Riefenstahl's <laughs> Triumph of the Will. But their parents may marvel that when Santa's big red sack of toys is hoisted from Factory 4 to sleigh, it resembles nothing so much as an airborne scrotum. <laughs> That's... I remember the Lenny writing. Yes. Right. I remember I remember that. Because yes, the, the arrival of Santa is like fucking Saruman or something. It's bizarre. Yes. You know, like the the, the 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 shadow that he casts and all that. Like and it or, or like it's like uh, Immortan Joe. Like, you know, it's yes. like it's like do not grow addicted to presents. <laughs> like and all the elves are like, Aah! I give you the gift of eggnog. <laughs> and then he flips the switch and the eggnog pours onto them. They're holding up their buckets. Uh, <laughs> it's just so weird. Um but the scrotum. Yes. That's the imagery. Having not seen this movie until tonight, I've spent the last what, almost 17 years? trying to imagine what this sack was going to look like. And it did not disappoint. <laughs> it's big. big as hell. Big, big as hell. Two big nuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else is there to say about uh, this movie? In the end, it's the answer is just, what can I tell you? I watch this movie or at least bits, uh, sequences of it over and over a lot and find it weirdly, uh, weirdly uh, reassuring. And um, it's just one of those for me and who knows why i think i think that is the story of this movie because like as much yeah. as this movie is an absolute freak show it is a christmas classic like that is watched all the time like I, i'm saying yes right I'm, I'm saying this like 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 it can't be true but i think it is like it's just that's what it is 
I mean, talking about more lines that mean nothing, right? Because, Joe, you're like, why do I like this movie? The way to answer it is with some shit the conductor would say, <laughs> right? Something like seeing is believing, but sometimes the most real things in the world are the things we can't see. What? Or what he says. <laughs> or, oh, I, I'm I about, to, about say to say it, it, Joey. The thing about trains, <laughs> it doesn't matter where they're going. What matters is deciding to get on. I'd say that's almost the direct opposite of the thing about trains. <laughs> trains, famously, you should figure out where it's going before you decide to get on. Yeah, you don't just like get to like, you know, Grand Central Station and be like, track 42 for me today. Like, you know, like that's not how it works. Nothing bad has ever happened to someone who got on the wrong train. That's the message of this film. A few things I want to spotlight quickly. Leslie Zemeckis plays sister Sarah and also the mom in this movie. Um, they had gotten married uh, in between Castaway and this. Uh, she, I, I believe, was predominantly a burlesque performer when they met. There was that weird moment when they go into the car of all the abandoned toys. Oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Which the Right, the mythology of that is very re- weird, where it's like, well, the big guy wants us to reclaim the forgotten toys so we could someday maybe salvage them. Now they just sit here in the dark, all fucked up. No one touches them. Then the one Scrooge marionette tries to assault the boy, saying, like, you're like me. You don't believe in anything, right? Um, But there's a moment where the kid is walking through all the marionettes, and he stops on one marionette that is a burlesque performer and, like, holds it and looks at it longingly for a little while. And I'm pretty certain that is supposed to be a likeness of Leslie Zemeckis, which is a very, very weird moment. It is like a lady in like a va-va-voom, like V-cut, black uh, slip, and a feather bow. It's weird. It's weird. Um, it's weird that, that whole... Lo- looks like his wife. That whole sequence is weird. Hot, hot. We got hot. it. Hot, hot. We got it. Where do it. they go after they've uh, done their number? Where, 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 where are those guys at? Great question. Great question. It's just like Santa's like, all right, all right. Okay, okay, okay. okay sh- 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 everyone be quiet. Everyone be, here's it. All right. I'm going to need... Two billion elves, one conductor, Steven Tyler, obviously. <laughs> Five. We're going to need a rail system so I can right, pick up 14 kids. Can we and also I'm get Steven like- Tyler a solid gold unicycle, but also <laughs> an extra long microphone stand with a wheel at the bottom of it so it can like follow him like, around uh-huh, on the uh-huh. unicycle. But of yeah, course yeah. it has to have flair. It wouldn't be right. Right, right, right. Yes, but it was Santa's like, I'm not done. I'm not done. Uh, for the to drive the train, anyone you, I don't fucking care. Any yeah. idiot, I don't Find, care at right, all. Right, it could be two dumb people. It could be a little girl who doesn't have a ticket. It doesn't matter. Doesn't it matter. Should definitely be people that are inappropriate to be around children. Yeah, for sure. right, right, right. Uh, if the train Some has a whole on it, that's fine. I I can't really deal with that guy. He has his own sort of way of doing things, and. Um. Uh, oh, and f- like five tap dancing hot chocolate guys. We need to <laughs> serve yeah. the kids hot chocolate. I Can mean, we get Jesus, some chocolate boys I'm not or a what? Monster. <laughs> right. Hanks famously turned down Toy Story when it was first offered to him without even reading the script because it was an animated Disney film, and he was like, "I can't sing. I can't be in a musical." And they had to like follow up with him and be like. No, we're like doing something different here. It's not a fairy tale movie. It's not a musical. And he was like, 
oh, thank God. Okay, if I don't have to sing, then that's fine. But just like, don't trick me into singing. And then Toy Story 2, there's the moment where they see him, the Woody puppet singing, You've Got a Friend in Me on TV. And he always talks about like, Pixar got me. They finally got me. They tricked me into doing a song. This movie being a soft musical with songs by Alan Silvestri and Glenn Ballard, the man who co-wrote Jagged Little Pill, is so bizarre, especially because your lead actor who's playing seven characters refuses to sing. So he's only really involved in one musical number, which is just him yelling stuff semi-rhythmically. Did we say this already? Alan Silvestri wrote this song? Wrote this yes, song. Yes. How many times did he just write hot, hot <laughs> on a piece of paper? Ben. He co-wrote it with the man who co-wrote Jagged Little Pill. Fuck. What? That uh, is but, so but fucking weird. How, how um, what's the other song called? The, the end credit song. Believe. That's, um, Believe, that's what it's called, right? He also yeah. wrote that, right? Right, that song is a, a bag of dog dick, and it's- it, But uh, it, is, it is just crazy where they're like, ah, this movie's not complete until we just have yeah. a fucking awful God, song. Groban. Yeah. Which, just that's the which, worst shit. <laughs> which just got like an autopilot Oscar nomination. Of course. I cannot imagine any of them listen to it. Did he perform that trash on yeah. the Oscars? He yeah. must, oh uh, yeah. Yeah, I remember it. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. And they, it was one of those things. They put him on a golden like... unicycle with a roller <laughs> mic stand. <laughs> it was one of those things where it's like, all right, let's go. I'm gonna go. <laughs> Come on. Oh right, because this is the year where it's like, this is the year where the nominees are so fucking bad that it's almost a crisis. So you've got this shit. You've got something from I think it's a French movie called The Chorus called Look to Your oh, yeah. Path. Yeah, that was you've the biggest act- hit in France. Yeah. You've got Accidentally in Love from Shrek 2 by the Counting Crows guy, right? Yeah, yeah. You've got um, Learn to be Lonely, the, 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 the absolute vomit that Anthony Lloyd Webber like, puked out like to add to Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> that got like, a nomination? <laughs> well, because it was nothing else. And so the winner was the song from the Motorcycle Diaries, like, which is right. not a musical, remember? Is, is Dreamgirls 2006... Uh yeah right because yeah, that's Dream the Girls year where they're 06. like this category is a disaster we haven't had good nominees in years and Dreamgirls got three out of five nominations and since then it's almost always it's 07. just it's three 07. nominees right uh yeah it kind of it's weird it kind of expands and contracts it's a weird category but they made the yeah. the uh, qualifications for nomination a lot more stringent like I just feel like they've been trying to prevent that kind of shit from getting nominated Def- again definitely definitely. Um, um, I think I think the last thing I want to just briefly shout out, hot, this is hot, kind yep. of the last major film role of Nona Gay, who I have always mm. found very compelling and I thought was going to be a big star. And we've covered almost the entirety of her, her filmography on this podcast because it's essentially the Matrix sequels, which she fills in for Aaliyah after Aaliyah passes away, uh, Ali, in which she's really good. And then before that, it's like she's in a video as herself. She's an extra in Harlem Nights as a child. But it's Ali, Matrix Reloaded, Matrix Revolutions, Crash, the same year as this. Then Polar Express, Polar Express the video game, the Matrix Online the video game. <laughs> and then 2005, Triple X State of the Union. Yeah, 2005, some movie called The Gospel. 2009, yeah. Blood and Bone. Never seen again. Never seen again. It's weird. She is very charming in the Matrix movies and in Ali. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what 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 her story is. 
No idea. It's just like this is all. her last major thing. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Very odd. Um, yeah. So this mm-hmm. movie, as Griff and I were sort of briefly discussing before the recording started, opened poorly because they opened it at before Thanksgiving. They opened it November 12th, 2004. I thought it was October for some reason, but it was November. Right. Okay. And like people were like, well, that was dumb. You know, people sort of did the like, what were they thinking? And it's like, then it did what it was, I guess, what they had bet on, which was it just played like gangbusters all the way through Christmas and became this surprise, sort of surprise hit. It was kind of a comeback hit. Like it made $300 million worldwide. That's very much the modern release strategy for holiday films because they're like, if you release a movie in December... No one goes to see a Christmas movie on December, like, 26. Like, the second Christmas day has passed, no one wants to watch a Christmas movie. So you need to give it, like, a month of lead time, and then it experiences a second wind in December. Like, Elf was a November release as well. Um, But this one, it felt early, and it uh, underperformed the opening weekend, and then just fucking lingered and multiplied. I think the IMAX helped them. Like, the word of mouth on IMAX was good. And that was at surcharge and that continued to play. They continued to re-release it every year and it would make another couple of million dollars every fucking year for a while until there just became too much IMAX competition. I will say, as a fan of 3D, this movie works really well in 3D, not just from a technological standpoint, but Zemeckis is a smart visual filmmaker in terms of knowing how to frame things to play well in 3D. And his basic composition style has a lot of depth in it and is very blocking dependent. And even the way he uses his camera movements is very, very effective in 3D. And this movie, watched at home in 3D, has a very uh, effective move it does that Martin Scorsese got a bunch of fucking credit for doing 10 years later in Hugo, which is the thing where, like, Sasha Baron Cohen is interrogating the kid and he, like, leans in and it's like he's leaning into the audience. Like it's a close-up that feels right. like it's invading your space. And he does that with like the hobo in this. And it's very effective. Fair so enough. That's, the, that's the best argument for this movie existing. All right. Polar Express. But here's the thing that's... Fa- All right. So this is a box office where the top five movies, four of them are new. Wow. Four are new. The only old movie is last week's number one, this week's number one, it's made $143 million. We've discussed it on the podcast. Um, what is the movie? Interesting. Oh, it's The Incredibles? It's The Incredibles. Yeah. That was the other thing. People were like, what are they doing releasing yeah. an animated film A up week against later. this yes. juggernaut? Like, what yeah. are they idiots? Yeah. Like, yeah. So The Incredibles, it, right. Joey, one of our favorite movies, yes. number one. Uh, and that was Pixar's biggest opening weekend ever, too. Like, they're opening against the second weekend of the biggest opening Pixar had had. Right. But then, weirdly, like, I feel like every Pixar movie had kind of outgrossed the previous one. Nemo had been so huge that people thought Incredibles was going to do Nemo-style numbers, and it came in a little under, and I wonder if that's Polar Express stealing a little bit of its repeat viewing. Right. Right, right, right. And but here's the other thing. So the, we have done the Incredibles weekend, so sometimes that's mm-hmm. a problem for us cuz you know. But no, Ray, The Grudge, Saw, Alfie, all out of the top 5 cuz there's four new movies. Number wow. 2 is The Polar Express opening at 23 
million dollars. Looks like it's thirty. I think it opened on a Wednesday or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. What is number three? It is a. <sighs> oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, I guess an action comedy from a fairly major director for hmm. the moment. Not a good director, but you know, a hit maker. And it yeah. is sort of a forgotten movie from him. Uh, kind of like a, kind of like a throwback '80s sort of sleazy action comedy. Uh, I've never hmm. seen it. Is it a two-hander? No, it's like it's not four, a guys, it's... four four people above the title. Uh, huh. You know, kind of like, hey, look, we got a lot of cool and interesting people, and it's like it has this really vague title. This is tower. This is a Where, tower you, heist. You know, like, is it? No, not, but but it's after the sunset. There you go, Brett Ratner. Joey was on the on the trail of Brett Ratner there, but it was Brosnan, it's after Hayek, Harrelson, and Cheadle. And Cheadle, that's right. Yeah, you also got uh, Naomi Harris. You got uh, Michael T. Williamson, Troy Garrity. There's people. Chris yep. Penn as fundamentally Rowdy does Fan. not exist. Yeah, what the fuck is that movie? Yeah, it's, it's like you know, it's one of those movies where it's like. You imagine someone saying we got to get over on all these guys, but I actually have no idea like who is getting over on what. I feel like in my memory that was one of the last or the last movies where Pierce Brosnan was still trying to pretend yes. to like he yes. was still like to be a, a non-Bond star. Like I can uh-huh. launch any movie. Right? But also that he was trying to still be like hot and then he sort of did a shift yes. where he was like what if I just start embracing my age and for like more like character issues yeah. and that, and then he was like, all right, this works better. That's him sort of doing Steve McQueeny kind of stuff. That movie, I feel like vibe wise. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Cause the same year is laws of attraction where like the right. lawyer rom-com he did with um, Julianne Moore. And the year after is the matador, which is yeah. him being like, I'll play an anti-hero. I'll play a washed up guy. I'll get a golden Globe yeah. nomination. All right. Number for so after the sunset, by the way, opened to eleven million and made wow. twenty eight. All right, number four is a horror sequel. Hmm, it's it not is, the Ring Two. No, it is. I want to say I'm gonna. It's the fifth in a long running, but recently revived. You know, at, at this point in time, franchise. Saw. No, not Saw. No, so Saw's about been- to emerge. It's has been rebooted. So it's fifth in total, but there was a gap. They took a break for a little while, you're saying? That's right. There's three, then there's a gap, and then there's a relaunch with kind of a new tone that that people were into. And so they were like, well, okay, all right, we'll do this. In 2004, you say. And how many have there been mm-hmm. since then? There has only been two since then and then a reboot, a, a maligned Another. reboot. Wow. And I believe it's, some maybe the next two might have been kind of straight to DVD. It's it's not it's not the Texas Chainsaw prequel, is it? It's not. It's not. It's a franchise you like, Griffin. It's a franchise I like. Oh, oh, it's Seed of Chucky. Seed of Chucky. So that's the one. Right, because Bride of Chucky is the one where they're like, "Do you like this?" Yes. This tone. And people are like, yes. And the so Seed of Chucky is the one that's really bananas, right? Like, uh, yes. It's really that's, going for meta. It's also the one where they let Don Mancini direct it, who had written all the films and had steered right. the weird evolution of the franchise 
and he was just like, I'm going full. Like, like Seed of Chucky is like a John Waters movie down to right. John Waters playing a paparazzi uh, and Chucky murdering Britney Spears. It's just vulgarity, but it kind of rules. Right. It's like a trauma I believe, film. I believe like Red Man is like fourth built. You know, like that, that's the... Right. right. And Jennifer okay. Tilly, who played a woman who then becomes, gets her spirit yeah, it, trapped in a doll plays in this movie Jennifer Tilly the actress who then also fucks Chucky. <laughs> correct. Correct. Yeah. Seed of Chucky. Maybe I yeah, should no, see no. this movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean huh. you you would dig you would dig that whole series, Ben. All right. And, number and five. their their son is named Glenn as a Glenn or Glenda joke. It's a very odd film. Yes. Number five is a sequel. Yeah. Okay. Maybe a slightly more whatever. It's a sequel. I think this movie was probably like Oh, well, we'll be a huge hit. And it was a disappointment in America. But this mm. movie made $260 million worldwide. It made 40 in America. But America mm. was not. And I lived in Britain. And when this movie came out, it was like, we're going. Everybody, wow. come on, come on, come on. Round up the house. We're going to the Odeon Newcastle. We're going to fucking see this thing. Because it, and like the theater was packed and was howling. This movie stinks, but it was a big deal in Britain. But it's a comedy. Comedy. Comedy sequel. And they never made another one, even though this one no, overperformed. They overseas. did like wow. more than a decade later. They did 12 years later, they made a third one. Is it Big Mama's House 2? No. 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 That Britain, was a spring release. Britain. Britain did not care about Big Mama's house. That's what I'm trying to figure out. It's not Mr. Bean's holiday. It's not. No, no, that's more, you know, right. That makes more sense. Right. I'm trying to think of big, big spaced out sequels. You might forget that one, this was made, and that two, the other one, the, the later sequel. Is it, is it Johnny English Returns? No. Again, you're, you know, you're sniffing around the right area. Yeah. But this movie did, put it this way, the first one got an Oscar nomination. Whoa. And this one gets a Golden Globe nomination for Best Whoa. Actress. Ridiculous. Is, is it, oh, is it Bridget Jones and the Edge of Reason? Oh, there we go. Right. My friend, Bridget Jones, colon, the End of Reason. The big edge. lawyer, big the liar, big dilemma. That is the but tagline. It, that, it is weird how much that movie just fucking farted at the u.s box office considering how yeah. big the first one was people were like nah we only needed one of those yeah but no, in britain I mean, and you know overseas like it killed yeah. i'm sorry i'm just like i'm running through this because uh, i was just trying to remember if, if i had this correct renee zelliger essentially disappears 2010 right then uh, there's yeah, like the photos right. that come out with the plastic surgery and everyone freaks out and she kind of hides again then a couple years later she comes out with Bridget Jones and the Edge of Reason, or, or Bridget Jones's baby. And it was yes. like, here's her return. It's her first movie in six years. Yes. People kind of shrug. Fully doesn't exist. Patrick Dempsey is like a major part of it. Because like, Hugh Grant didn't want to be in it. Right. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's like she disappears for six years, comes back with her like most beloved character, the world shrugs, and then she just casually wins an Oscar again. Right. Like, I'm not saying she would have won an Oscar for Bridget Jones 3, but it is weird that people were clearly ready for her to return and then were just like, no, not the one we like. <laughs> Give us some dog shit biopic. 
<laughs> can you just fucking phone in some chat? Yeah. She didn't phone in it, but whatever. Like, can you be in she's the most fine. phoned in biopic? Yeah. She's fine. Oh, God, that movie stinks. Yeah. I can't believe she has two Oscars, but whatever. She's yeah, in Jerry Maguire. She gets a free pass for life. That's the thing. It's like I, there's a universe in which I'm happy to give her two Academy Awards and neither of them would be for the performances she won for. Absolutely. She's given good performances and yeah. right. It's neither of her wins. That, that is yeah. a weird like because like with Swank, it's like, OK, she shouldn't have two Oscars, maybe objectively. But yeah. those were both very They're both. Yeah, you, you, you can see why those performances landed at that moment. You know, yeah. with, with Sally Field, Norma Ray, that's one of the greatest movie performances. The other one, you're like, well, that was stupid. Like, they just fucked up. Whatever. It was a weird year. Mm-hmm. I can't believe that you guys are going to have to do a whole... I say this as the guy who wanted to do the Polar Express episode. I can't believe yeah. that you're going to have to do a whole Christmas Carol episode. Absolutely, um, we are. And we're going to do, do it with bells on. Ring-a-ding-ding. <laughs> Can you hear them? Can you hear it? Um, no, because no. you know I don't. Oh, have, yeah. uh, uh, I don't believe in anything. You guys are <laughs> cynical adults. Do not do not believe in Robert Zemeckis's uh, whatever. Wait, real quick. Mm. Yeah. When the bell falls down, we hear Santa's coming to town. Slow as hell, right? Do you remember <laughs> this in the movie? Chopped <laughs> and screwed. <laughs> okay. For years, I've been working on a slow Christmas album. And and for our Christmas Carol episode, there will be a link to this album. I finally finished it. Ben, you're gonna drop the album. This is your official slow Christmas album, y'all. To be clear, so this is a preview. Uh, It's gonna December's gonna be a huge month, guys. Santa has come to town. Ben has never mentioned never 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 mentioned mentioned this before. We're talking about is you taking existing songs and then just slowing them, slowing yeah. them way down, and is that's it, it, right? Is it like Correct. Inception where it's like, <laughs> like, like that? Like, how slow is slow? <laughs> how oh, slow it's we slow, baby. <laughs> Do you have a name? Can we officially reveal the name of this album, or is it still untitled? I mean, I've just been going with like. Untitled Slow Christmas album, but <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll I try to come up with something catchier. I don't know. Untitled Slow Christmas album is pretty perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're going to get a better title than that. <laughs> oh boy! All right. Well, there we go. Uh, that's thrilling. Yes. And David, I wanted to second what you said. Ben has revealed so many of his deepest hopes and dreams to us over the years. So many of his greatest ambitions. This is the first we have ever heard of this years in the making slow Christmas album. <laughs> oh boy. I wasn't right. ready to reveal it yet. So the of time course. just felt right. Right. Wow. Right. Uh, Joey, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for kicking off our, our December to remember Zemeckis podcast event. As we're we going to get silly. <laughs> Trapes through these mocap movies and his holiday films. Um, people should follow you on Twitter. Uh, yes, they can also now subscribe to my Substack, which is about hey, theater. So if hey. you enjoyed me rambling about about uh, about Michael Jeter and Grand Hotel, that is joeysims.substack.com. Hell yeah. Got, you got some of the best theater takes around. Beowulf next week. Yep. It's going to be good. Zemeckis is weirdly horny, weirdly violent, still somehow PG-13. Mocap 
adult 3D action film. Um, I'm excited for that. And thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Thanks to Joey's roommate, Lane Montgomery, for our theme song. Pat Rounds and Joe Bowen for our artwork. Uh, and for Gudo for social media, helping produce the show. Go to blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit. And patreon.com slash blank check for blank check special features. We're polishing off that alien franchise. Uh, those commentaries. Um, and as always on this podcast there's just one rule never ever let it cool